Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. I've mentioned B.R. Myers on this show before, and he's an expert in North Korean propaganda. This is how he summarizes Kim Il-sung's mythologized, propagandized biography. Myers writes, quote, On April 5th in 1912, the first year of Juche, in the Mangyongdae district of Pyongyang, a son was born to Kim Hyong-jik and his wife Kang Pan-sok. It quickly became clear to all in the village that this was no ordinary child. More upright and virtuous than his playmates, he climbed a tree in a naive effort to catch a rainbow. When only seven, he saw the police arrest his father for anti-Japanese activities. After his release in 1923, the family resolved to leave for Manchuria. Mature beyond his years, the boy vowed never to return to Pyongyang until Korea's independence has been restored. In Manchuria, Kim Il-sung devoted himself wholly to the anti-Japanese struggle. By the age of 16, he had already formed the Anti-Imperialist League and purged the Korean revolutionary movement of narrow-minded nationalists and xenophiles alike. At a conference of revolutionaries in 1930, the 18-year-old Kim set out his brilliant new ideology of Juche thought, explaining that man is the master of all things, and that a revolutionary strategy for Korea must reflect the country's unique conditions. Myers goes on to go over World War II and the Korean War, and talks about the latter parts of Kim's life, quote, In the years that followed, Kim Il-sung worked day and night, waking every morning at 3 a.m. as he rebuilt his country into a shining model of self-reliant independence. Juche study groups sprang up around the world as foreigners sought to emulate the DPRK's spectacular progress in all fields. But for all his many duties, the leader found time to visit factories and farms, solving their problems at lightning speed while touching the hearts of the workers with his parental concern for their welfare. Unfortunately, this selflessness took a toll on his health, and in 1994 he passed away, plunging the masses into a grief such that they had never known. Unquote. At least, that's the propagandized biography we have right now. Myers does acknowledge that, in any totalitarian regime, history is mutable, and the Kim regime has changed the stories behind Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il a few times to suit the needs of the present. But that image of Kim Il-sung, as the kind of loving parent of his country, loving leader of his country, still looms over North Korea. Like, literally. There is a monument in downtown Pyongyang to him, which you've probably seen before. It's the very large bronze statue of Kim Il-sung, and if you get a book about North Korea, that's probably on the cover. Many books about North Korea have that statue as their go-to image for the Kim regime, including the one I just quoted, B.R. Myers' book about Korean propaganda and self-mythologizing and xenophobia and how the government presents itself. It's called The Cleanest Race. It is deeply weird and a really good read. It has that statue on the cover. And 
That statue is part of a larger monument called the Mensu Hill Grand Monument. It is in front of a mural of Mount Pictou, and in Korean national mythology, that is, well, I don't want to simplify it by saying it's their Mount Fuji, but it's their big, mythologically important mountain. So if you've ever looked at that statue, notice what's behind it. It's the single most important natural vista in Korean self-mythologizing. It is the birthplace of Dangun, the mythological legendary founder of Korea. And it's also where Kim Il-sung claimed to have had his secret rebel base during World War II. The memorial also portrays ordinary North Koreans fighting valiantly under the guidance of the great leader. Soldiers are soldiering, workers are working, scientists are sciencing as hard as they can, all under his guidance, all enlightened by Juche thought. However, as I've mentioned before, North Korea's best days were during the Cold War. Before and after the Korean War, it looked a lot better than South Korea did. And, for the people living through that time period, it was a big improvement over Japanese occupation. But that changed. By the time that memorial went up in 1972, North Korea's best days were behind it. All of that glory under the great leader's giant outstretched bronze hand and his benevolent statuesque gaze, all that was over. Today I want to talk about North Korea's big setbacks after their glory days, after their best days in the Cold War. And what really started that downward spiral that led to the present? There are a few major setbacks, and one of them will sound a little recent if you're listening to this in early 2018. That's in Olympics in South Korea. In 1981, the International Olympic Committee awarded Seoul the 1988 Summer Games. And during the run-up to these Olympic Games, they turned out to be very important, more important than a lot of people could have anticipated in 1981. See, these were the first summer games that would actually have mostly everybody. These were the first summer games that would actually bring international rivals on either side of the Iron Curtain. In 1980, the United States boycotted the Moscow Olympics in a response to the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. The U.S. was joined by several other countries, including a whole bunch of Middle Eastern countries and European countries. And yeah, remember when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan? Remember Rambo 3? Remember when an icon of 80s America fought valiantly alongside the proto-Taliban? And that was considered really patriotic back then? Yeah, that movie has not aged well. That was really weird. Anyway, because the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, the U.S., several European countries, and several Middle Eastern countries were out. So were, like, Chile and Singapore. This made a lot of people mad. Now, the next time the Summer Games rolled around, in 1984, it was in Los Angeles. And the Soviet Union didn't like being walked out on. So it responded in kind, and it let a walkout. So in L.A., a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries weren't there. By 1988 in Seoul, it has been a long time since a lot of the Eastern and Western countries faced each other at a proper Summer Olympics. Also, recall that last episode, 
the 1980s were a major period of change for South Korea. 1987 was when they had their first actual real legitimate democratic election, but before that, you had major social change, you had protest movements, you had all sorts of modernizations in South Korea. So, this is very much South Korea's coming out party. This is South Korea presenting itself to the world as a new kind of country, and it's presenting itself to the whole world, east and west alike. North Korea is also upset about this because just by attending, lots of countries are legitimizing South Korea as real. Recall that neither North nor South Korea actually recognize each other. Neither of those countries acknowledge the right of the other to legally exist. So, for North Korea to have the Soviet Union and lots of other Eastern Bloc countries attending Seoul's big sports party, for them, that is a slap in the face. So North Korea tried to share the spotlight. After the award in 1981, they said to the International Olympic Committee, Hey, listen, Korea is all one big country. We had this unpleasantness with, you know, the Korean War and division and whatnot, but if you're going to give it to Seoul, you have to acknowledge all of Korea. So we would like to co-host the games with them. And the International Olympic Committee actually heard them out. Over the course of the 1980s, there were several rounds of negotiations between the IOC and North Korea. And North Korea's position always was, we want half the games or nothing. The International Olympic Committee eventually said, we can't do that, given that this is the biggest party in the world and the logistics are terrible and all that. But here's what we can give you. They were prepared to give North Korea a few things. A couple of soccer games, archery, cycling, table tennis, and women's volleyball. Which is not nothing. Had that happened, you would have had a substantial amount of Olympians, of press, of world leaders, of observers, of archery fans, going back and forth between the two Koreas over the course of the 1988 Olympics. Had that deal actually gone through, North Korea would have been exposed to the outside world and the outside world to North Korea probably pretty significantly. This could have legitimized North Korea. It also could have changed history and brought in a bunch of outside influence. It's impossible to know. But I love thinking about this idea of an Olympics on either side of the DMZ. You have archery over here, you have track and field over there, and in between them, the world's biggest landmine field. But, as fascinating as that would have been, it didn't happen. North Korea turned the IOC's offer down. They wanted half the games, or no deal. Anyway, in the face of that final decision, and all of that humiliation... North Korea decided to, instead of negotiating for sports and games and tourism and all that, do something else. Blow up an airplane. Yeah, if they couldn't have half of the games, they would make sure that Seoul had zero of them. Or they'd at least make them go badly. So, in November of 1987, 
two North Korean intelligence agents successfully destroyed a South Korean passenger jet and killed 115 people. The idea was to create the impression that Seoul was not, in fact, a safe venue for the Olympics. And, North Korea thought, the international community would either not show up or just send the bare minimum of people and that would, you know, rain on Seoul's parade. It didn't work. The 1988 Olympics were a gigantic success for Seoul, and a gigantic success for South Korea. A few sources I read compared them to the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, which were very much part of modern Japan's coming out party. And this was back, by the way, when Olympics were still profitable for countries. So South Korea ended up doing great, despite North Korea trying to scare everyone with an exploding airplane. By the way, one rabbit hole I went down uh, when reading up on this was about the two North Korean agents who blew that airplane up. One of them is still alive. They didn't do a suicide bombing. What they did was disguise a bomb as a radio, got it onto a plane, and then their intent was to get on a convoluted series of flights back to North Korea. And these two agents did this using fake Japanese passports. Their cover is that they were traveling as a father and daughter. In Bahrain, authorities noticed, hey, uh, their travel pattern seems a little bit suspicious. Also, their passports seem a little bit fake. So they confronted this supposedly Japanese father-daughter pair. Upon being caught, the two North Korean agents got out the cyanide cigarettes they were equipped with, bit down on them, and tried to kill themselves. The older guy, who was posing as a father, he died. It worked. However, the other agent, posing as a daughter, her cyanide cigarette ended up being defective. Bahrainian officials arrested her. She ended up waking up, handcuffed to a hospital bed. She was eventually deported to South Korea and got a pardon. Yeah, one of the perpetrators of one of the biggest and most successful acts of state-sponsored terrorism in 20th century history is a free woman. Her name is Kim Hyun-hui, and she's now married and the mother of two in South Korea. And I guess this is a theme between her and Kim Shin-jo, the guy who got caught during one of North Korea's many attempts to kill Park Chung-hee. It seems to be that a great way to escape North Korea is to be part of a, you know, violent covert operation, get caught, get pardoned, and then have a more or less normal life after that. And I kind of wonder if Kim Hyun-hui and Kim Shin-jo have ever met and talked about this. Maybe that'd be a bizarre conversation to listen to and have translated to me because I do not speak Korean. But anyways... The 1988 games were great. South Korea got a whole bunch more recognition, legitimacy, revenue, and connections with an investment from the international community. But if Kim Il-sung's regime couldn't have the Olympics, well, maybe they could still develop. Maybe they could replicate the economic boom that South Korea was experiencing. So they tried a few things. Uh, this is a passage from Victor Cha's book, The Impossible State, which I've quoted before. Again, Victor Cha, 
He is a Georgetown professor, former White House advisor. He's been to North Korea a bunch and is currently not ambassador to South Korea. I've mentioned this before, but but he was passed over for that position because he is opposed to a first strike on the North. Anyway, here's what Cha writes about North Korean attempts to develop themselves in the 1980s and early 1990s. He says, quote, The regime engaged in a series of wasteful large-scale projects throughout the 1980s. These were prohibitively expensive endeavors aimed to compete with the South, as well as to mobilize labor to work harder for the state. These projects, several of them left unfinished, had the effect of hollowing out the economy, which, in conjunction with the cutoff of the Soviet and Chinese patron aid at the end of the decade, more on that in a bit, by the way, laid the groundwork for collapse in the 1990s. One project was for Tideland Reclamation. North Korea was short of arable land and therefore sought to create some 300,000 hectares of land on the west coast of the peninsula. This was a massive project which dredged tidal flats that were submerged under one to two meters of water and turned these into usable farmland. It became known in Korea as the Find New Land Project. The North managed to complete about 20,000 hectares over a decade until Kim Il-sung's death in 1994, after which the project was left uncompleted. The West Sea Barrage was a $1.77 billion project to build the longest dam in the world, longer than the Panama and Suez Canals. The dam was to cut across the Taedong River, which would serve to irrigate the newly reclaimed tidelands on the west coast of the peninsula. Three divisions of North Korean military troops were put to work on this project, which ultimately was also left uncompleted, unquote. That's huge. By the way, it's not inconceivable to uh, build new land where there's ocean. Japan has done it. Significant parts of Tokyo Bay are land made out of garbage. Osaka's Kansai International Airport is built on artificial land. But North Korea, under the guidance of the great leader, just wasn't able to get the job done. But making new land and trying to make the world's biggest dam... Those are not the biggest economic boondoggles that North Korea had in this period. The most monumental waste of money during this time period was an unfinished hotel that still looms over Pyongyang. The Ryuyong Hotel was an attempt to build a 105-story pyramid-shaped hotel in downtown Pyongyang that at the time would have been the world's tallest hotel. Construction began in 1987. And this thing was supposed to be gigantic and luxurious. The hotel was supposed to have not one, not two, but five rotating restaurants in it. Also, on the outside of it, on the exterior sloped parts of the pyramid, there were supposed to be these elevators that would not only take you to the various rooms and floors, but also give you a stunning panoramic view of Pyongyang and the surrounding area. And the initial vision was to make this thing competitive with and comparable to other luxury hotels in cities like London or Tokyo. Construction stalled in 1989. And now the biggest and most visible building in Pyongyang is unfinished and empty. When you look at that skyline, you will see a great black pyramid that looks grand, that looks impressive, but has nothing inside it. North Korea's biggest construction project 
is a husk. And it's a metaphor. I mean, you don't have to go very far to see this as like a big monument to North Korean hubris. It's almost too trite. It's almost too ridiculous. But it's also very, very real. And things are about to get even worse for North Korea. Not only are they losing out on the Olympics, not only are they wasting money on trying to build the world's biggest dam and the world's tallest hotel, they are about to lose their biggest patron, the Soviet Union. It's the late 80s. It's right about time for the Berlin Wall to fall. The end of the Cold War made the DPRK even more isolated. It had never been a really active, integral part of the Eastern Bloc. And even today, China seems to tolerate it as a buffer state and, like, weird roommate, rather than actually support it as a real ally. But it was still a part of a larger communist universe for a long time. And that meant it got some amount of aid and assistance, even if the Soviet Union and the other Eastern Bloc countries went to Seoul's Olympics. By the way, Cuba did boycott the 1988 Olympics on North Korea's behalf, so I guess they weren't entirely without good bros in the communist world, but still. And you don't even have to wait for the Soviet Union to properly evaporate before aid starts to trickle away. In fact, it was already declining in the Gorbachev era. This is Viktor Cha again, and he says, quote, for decades, Pyongyang had enjoyed favorable trade terms with the Soviet Union and with China in the form of subsidized barter trade, patron aid, and debt finance trade. The end of this assistance spelled the breakdown of the economy. Russia accounted for 49.5% of total DPRK trade in 1985. By 1993, this dropped an unimaginable sixfold. Total trade with the Soviet Union plummeted to less than $100 million by 1994, one-thirtieth of what it had been four years prior. Soviet-made imports by the DPRK sat at about $175 million in 1990, but by 1992, they were less than $10 million, and by 1994, basically non-existent. In 1987, the Soviet Union sent North Korea nearly 50% of all its food imports, and in 1988, it was still close to 25%, totally nearly $100 million for the two years. Yet over the course of the following six years, as the famine was fast approaching, the Soviets sent something between just 20 and $25 million, many years sending nothing at all, unquote. Cha doesn't mention it, but a lot of that barter trade that he talks about was the Soviet Union sending very real things like coal, oil, and food, North Korea sending other goods that there was often little or no demand for in the Soviet Union. So it looked like trade, but it was aid, and it was aid that was soon gone. At the end of the Cold War, not only is North Korea not able to jumpstart its own economy with very large dams or very large hotels, it also loses its patron. I'm also wondering, why does it have to be the world's biggest dam? Why does it have to be the world's tallest hotel? Like, it doesn't need to be impressive to be effective. Just build a perfectly normal dam to do dam stuff, or like a normal-sized hotel to do hotel things. Like, I might be oversimplifying this, but North Korea seems to have this attitude that it needs to be glorious and grandiose, 
or nothing at all. Infrastructure projects don't need to be like mind-shattering and amazing to be effective. They can be ordinary to be effective. But dictators and authoritarians don't like normal infrastructure. They like big things that they can put their name on and stand in front of. And anyways, I digress. You might be wondering why China didn't pick up the slack after the Soviet Union went away. And they kind of did. To this day, China remains North Korea's biggest quote-unquote trade partner and patron. But recall, during this time period, China is also undergoing modernization of its own, starting with special economic zones around Hong Kong and discovering that Chinese state capitalism is making them a lot more money than Maoism did. I mean, I'd argue that China today is communist in name only, and they were ideologically drifting from North Korea's Juche thought and Kim Il-sungism. But after all that real material loss, with no Olympics, with economic boondoggles, with no more Soviet Union, North Korea suffered another kind of loss, a symbolic one. In 1994, the man who had been immortalized as a grand bronze statue breathed his last. Kim Il-sung was 82 years old when he died. The country mourned him for 10 days after that, officially, and it seems some of those feelings might even have been genuine. North Korean propaganda often looks sort of flimsy or fake to outsiders. But if that's your world, if that's what you're born into, if that's what's important to you, and then what's important goes away, you're going to feel something. And during his funeral, you did have spontaneous displays of emotion. People crying in the street and a country wondering, what's next? And this is also curious for me, because one question I have is, how much real work did Kim Il-sung actually do? There are some dictators who take a real active role in, you know, dictating. Mussolini was apparently a notorious micromanager. He liked to give his opinions about construction projects, about military operations, about basically everything all the time telling his underlings how to do their job. And Kim Il-sung is most known for going out and around to farms, factories, facilities, and giving on-the-spot guidance, telling people how to do X or how to do Y or that kind of thing. But most of it seems to have been really, really trite stuff, like giving people like little moral lessons or lifting their spirits up or just demonstrating that the leader was there at all, that he took time out of his day to actually go around and, like, see what commoners were doing, uh, as opposed to a Mussolini who, again, was a real actual micromanager. I think it would be fascinating when slash if North Korea finally falls, if we can get our hands on records that show how much Kim Il-sung was actually involved with the day-to-day -day operations of the state. But anyways, I digress again. Regardless of how active or inactive a real administrator he was, no one other than Kim Il-sung, it seemed, could be president of North Korea. So he stayed in office, even though he was dead, even though he is dead. And Kim Il-sung is now the eternal president of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. He rules, as it were, from a massive mausoleum in Pyongyang, which you can go to. And I read a few accounts 
of what it's like to visit. Kim's mausoleum is a gigantic building, and North Korea does offer tours to outsiders. If you go, which I don't recommend doing, apparently the first thing that you do is you have to step in onto a machine that cleans the bottom of your shoes. Because no one can pay homage to the Eternal President with even a bit of dust from the outside world on their feet. Then, instead of walking through some somber dark hallway, you get on a moving sidewalk. And visitors are required to stay on a series of moving sidewalks as they move through the mausoleum. After some minutes of darkness, one of the first things that they see is a statue of Kim Il-sung, carved from white stone and illuminated with pink and blue light. And there, apparently, you just stay, observing the statue in the colored light as somber music plays. Then the moving sidewalk takes you past carvings of mourners, of people in the street crying in 1994, seeing their world shattered and reacting to one of the biggest tragedies that, if you listen to North Korea, human civilization has ever witnessed. The moving sidewalks then take you to the main event, the body of Kim Il-sung itself. He lies in a crystal coffin. You can still see his face, the face that's adorned a million propaganda posters, the face that's on a massive painting outside of a mausoleum, the face that's on the wall of basically every office in North Korea. And yeah, people are required to see that face every day. Your workplace and your home have to have his picture. Not only that, you have to keep that picture clean and dusted and well-lit. If you don't, it's a crime against the Eternal President. You can see the original version, or at least a heavily embalmed one, right there in the mausoleum, on the moving sidewalk. You're expected to bow three times. The moving sidewalk continues, though, because it's not merely enough to see the body of the man. You also have to see his accomplishments. And in the next room of the Tomb of the Eternal President, you can see all of the accolades he got from international leaders. Every gift that he received from some other august leader of the 20th century, like Joseph Stalin or Muammar Gaddafi. And there are accounts of his great influence as a political philosopher. Now, in this room with all of his, like, stuff and accolades and glories and Xbox achievements, um, apparently there are some things that look sort of ridiculous to outsiders. For instance, the mausoleum displays his Soviet medals from World War II, but a lot of those were medals that were given to just anyone in the Red Army who picked up a rifle. But they were Kim Il-sung's, so hey, they're a big deal. Also, the mausoleum makes a big deal about the fact that Kim Il-sung had a degree from an American institution of higher learning. He had a degree from Kensington University. Now, if you've never heard of Kensington University, uh, good, because apparently it's a scammy diploma mill. First, it operated in California, but Californian authorities shut it down because it was a useless diploma mill that was defrauding students. It moved to Hawaii. Hawaiian authorities shut it down because it was a useless diploma mill that was defrauding students. So in Kim Il-sung's mausoleum, 
one of the things that the regime tries to use to legitimize him as this great, grandiose, internationally respected political figure is a degree from an American diploma mill. Also, Kim Il-sung's mausoleum sounds like a really creepy Disney ride. Imagine the Hall of Presidents, except there's an actual president, and he's dead. However, that mausoleum is not the most prominent memorial to the Eternal President. Nor is that statue in downtown Pyongyang that still stands there, gleaming and bronze and empty. No, the true tomb of the Eternal President is North Korea itself. Is this trite? Is this on the nose? Is this a really easy metaphor? Yes. Yes, it is. But his monument is the country he found as a prosperous industrial area and left as impoverished and suffering. But someone else still needs to run the government. Someone else still needs to see to day-to-day operations of North Korea. Someone else still needs to be there, in front of the crowds, waving to the military, making noises about Juche, and seeing to North Korea's status as an international gadfly. Kim Il-sung is still president, but someone needs to be second in command to a dead man. Next time, Kim Jong-il comes onto the scene. And I do mean next time, because... In the next episode, we will be taking a break from North Korea, and I'm going to be running an interview I recently did. So after that, we will get back to the North Korea saga. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, click the thing, become a supporter. I really do appreciate it. I couldn't do this without you. So thank all of you who make the podcast happen every single month. I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter at Joe Streckert. The podcast is on Facebook, facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. Go to iTunes, give us ratings and reviews. That also helps us out. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 